Chapter 22, we're preaching this series through the Gospel of Matthew. And if you're visiting, I want you to know that we have every confidence in the Word of God to be uh, sufficient for building us up in this life, uh, that we might enjoy God and, and serve Him gladly in this present age, uh, as well as the great, the great and abiding hope of heaven, be with the Lord forever as His people in this heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth. And so uh, we let the Word of God have the agenda here. Uh, we, we read the Word of God serially through various passages of Scripture. We, we tell it, we read them carefully and explain the, the reading, and we hope to make some application as to what, uh, what might be gleaned, how you might use this in your life, how you might increase in, in your faith, what you know about God, and how you might serve Him gladly. So that's the agenda. We have every confidence because we... We know and the Holy Spirit has convinced us that this is the, the true Word of God that's uh, infallible and errant, and it endures forever. So with every confidence, let's read Matthew 22. Our text this morning will be verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words, and thus sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away, as far as reading God's holy word. Grass withers, flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. This is the word that is read to you by God's strength, by his, his excellent redemptive grace. It will be preached to you. Please be seated. We're in the closing chapters of Matthew, coming to the conclusion. Of course, you know, if you're a Christian, you know what the conclusion is. He is headed to the cross. And his enemies are converging. And that is because he has now entered uh, the city of Jerusalem, during Passover week, and he has made a great uproar in upsetting people because they are long overdue for reform. His own covenant people, his own church of the Old Testament, and yet, my friends, they had very badly compromised. They had lost. They had lost their way. They had lost their charter. And uh, as we begin to close the Gospel of Matthew, we see more and more. Uh, with greater and greater clarity just how bad the Jewish leaders missed in understanding the scriptures and understanding and knowing God truly and especially as God is manifested in his son. That's the proof of it. And what we mean by miss, of course, is that old English word, the origin 
of the word sin. Sin is missing. Despite great study, despite great intellect, great zeal, great intentions. And yet the Lord, the Lord Jesus, doesn't miss. He just doesn't sin. He understands the word of God profoundly. And so he is that great prophet, that great teacher that came and still teaches us in his spirit and by his word. And so therefore we have every confidence in our Redeemer. Not only that he died for us, but that as our prophet, he will lead us into all truth by sending his spirit. And he will, all, all redemption is his. He will completely redeem his people. We are utterly saved through Jesus. And we'll see some of that wonderful wisdom and knowledge here exercised in this context. Now, this is Jesus last week. He's challenged mightily the practices uh, going on there in the temple. Now, the temple area in Jerusalem is, is, is the capital city. It's, it's the very epicenter of, of religious knowledge. And if these men had erred greatly in the faith, and Jesus challenges these, then this is bound to raise the hackle of anyone that uh, thinks they're doing fine, that they're righteous and all and just in all the practices. And remember, he came into town riding on the, on the fall of a donkey very humbly, and then he overturned the tables. Uh, he drove everybody out. He's correcting and reproving everybody. And the question is, of course, wait a minute. By, by what authority are you doing this? You're, you're, you don't belong to our sect. You don't belong to this school. You don't belong to... Who set you up for this? That's the question. By what authority is Jesus doing this? And remember, especially in these last... Uh, couple of exchanges with these debates that Jesus is having, these discussions, but they're more, they're more like traps than discussions. They're, they're traps in, in, this, in these very crafty conversations that are being now uh, uh, hurled before Jesus. He is ultimately thinking and explaining about authority. All right. Um, this here in this, in this passage, uh, verses 15 through 22, is the first of a series of subtle attacks on Jesus in his last week on earth in Jerusalem. Uh, they're wanting to catch him. They're wanting to catch him saying something uh, on the one hand um, uh, against the established government or against the, 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 the tradition of the elders. But they want to catch him to either accuse him or finally to silence him. Uh, and uh, not a few are probably already intending to put him to death. Jesus has already explained this in the parables of the unjust tenants, uh, the, the madness of the tenants holding the vineyard in the name of the Lord, in uh, ignoring, in, in insulting, and sometimes even killing God's messengers, the prophets, and they're going to do the same with the heir of all things, the Lord Jesus. That's already prophesied. We know where this is going. So the teaching this morning is this, that wicked men, uh, wicked men purpose to oppose Christ and his kingdom, sometimes using craft and subtle means, but uh, no one, no one can prevail against, against Christ and his kingdom. And more specifically in this passage, I would say that wicked men, both religious and secular, because the, the, the two arms of the Lord's reign over heavens and the earth, the two arms over men are the civil authority and the, the churchly authority. And in this respect, we're beginning to see both parties converge 
both stewards of God's authority over all things, now attacking and putting to shame the very source, the head of the church, the only mediator of the covenant of grace. Wicked men, both religious and secular, purpose and plot, plan to oppose Christ and his kingdom, sometimes using craft and subtle means, but the result will be that no one, no one can prevail against Christ and his kingdom. We'll see this in three points. First, we'll see that wicked men purpose to oppose Christ and to oppose his kingdom. Uh, in fact, today, if one is to oppose Christ, he's going to oppose his church. He's going to oppose his visible kingdom on earth. This is the long war, not <clears throat> begun when Jesus was born of Mary, but begun at the very fall of man, where the serpent deceived Eve, and uh, Adam was complicit in betraying God, breaking the covenant there in paradise. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent will clash. They will clash in time throughout all human history until human history is culminated in the judgment day. Men will either be of the seed of the serpent, proven in their deeds and thoughts and words, or they will be of that blessed seed of the Holy Spirit given to the womb of Mary, born of Mary, born as man and yet being the divine Son of God. And the children of Christ are born spiritually by faith in Christ. And those are his offspring. And that's the holy seed. That's the, that's the great battle. That's the long view of what's going on here. The seed of the serpent will form unlikely alliances, however, uh, in order to attain a common goal or a common purpose. And here we see the, the Pharisees and their disciples uh, uh, in co-belligerence, we call it, uh, warring with the same, on the same side as the Herodians. And believe me, these guys are not friends. These are these, the, the, the Pharisees were not prone to ask the Herodians out for brunch. Uh, no, uh, they had their separate ideas. They were very, very rigid in what they believed, and especially the Pharisees that were the conservative party. They they greatly resented the compromises uh, of the Herodians to the Roman government, and uh, the Herodians, of course, uh, well they. Yeah, it, it was through their own planning and, and conniving that they rose to rank. And later we'll see the culmination of that struggle again with the high priest and, uh, and Pilate. Uh, again, this is foreboding uh, Jesus' de demise when he comes to judgment. Now, wicked men purpose to oppose Christ and his kingdom. And hypocrisy is the mark of one who's opposing Christ. As, as, well, if he's religious, especially if he's religious, hypocrisy, Christ's enemies, uh, you have to be understood, you have to understand this. In the visible church, in the visible covenanted community of those that profess an interest in Jehovah in this day, and those who profess, uh, profess an interest in, in Christ in these days, Christ's enemies are both within and without the church. The visible church. As, as we understand it, in the Reformed world, uh, sometimes is, is, is pure, all saints, and mostly it's mixed. We've got people that are not truly converted, but are somehow enlightened by the Holy Spirit. They have some influences, they have some knowledge, they read their Bibles, they even pray, and join others in prayer. And yet, my friends, 
the seed of the Holy Spirit is not really in them, and when given an opportunity, that seed will express itself in the flesh. And that flesh is always opposed to Christ. Hypocrisy is the mark of an antichrist. Christ's enemies are both within and without the church. And, of course, <clears throat> the means uh, of the approach of the Pharisees and the Herodians as they, as they come to Christ is insincere. Because if it had been sincere, their own wickedness would have been apparent. <laughs> if you want to destroy an enemy, you, you don't announce you're coming with fluorescent paints and lights saying, here I come, I've got a gun, I'm going to kill you. No. No, it's best to be uh, undercover, camouflaged, and, and take a shot at them when you might. Well, this is going on. Sincerity, and these men would reveal a dangerous enemy to Jesus and to others, and to know that there's opposition to Christ, who is, regardless of all this intrigue and all this hatred against him, is still amazingly popular with the common people. Amen. Amazingly so. <clears throat> the people, uninstructed and ignorant, have more piety and greater faith and greater love and esteem to Christ than the religious leaders. It's got to be a case <clears throat> merely of envy um, and hatred. Now, with these wicked men, uh, they don't just fall into sin. This is not an accident. I, I, hope, I hope most of us, you know, <clears throat> and I give people the benefit of the doubt when we, when we sin against our, our beloved people, our, our wives, when we sin against our, our sons, when we We'll say things against our own friends. We fall into sin. We ought to be more careful. <laughs> These men are not falling into sin. These men are plotting and are planning sin. It's premeditated. It, 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 this is a coordinated plan. And they take counsel. And these are the most sinful and most uh, wicked and most dangerous of all the acts of sinful men. And it only becomes more heinous an act and, and more a heinous a crime when this viciousness, this devilry, is directed against great and noble and good and godly people. Again, the examples in the parables have been the, the zeal to absolutely eradicate prophets. And by the way, the prophets in the Old Testament, they were not killed because they were preaching the gospel. The prophets were always killed because they applied the law of God. And that's the only way to become unpopular. Give people God's blessings. Oh, they'll love you to death. But if you apply the law and indicate their sin, they might bring about your death. They might just bring it on early. Premeditated and coordinated plans in council are the most sinful, and they are the most dangerous. And this is not a slipping in the sentence, it's not an accident, not an accident that Jesus finds conflict, controversy, uh, and friction. Jesus, of course, has always known his mission, and, uh, and, and so he is, he set his face like, like flint, like a granite block, to go to Jerusalem and to suffer, because that was the, the, the precise will of God. He was to be the atoning sacrifice. He was to be that blameless, holy, sinless Lamb of God that would take the sin of the world upon his shoulders on the cross. That we, who are guilty, might have our surety uh, in that righteous man and our sins covered in his blood. That's the gospel, my friends. And we love to preach the gospel. Instead of 
the wicked in Genesis 6, that the thoughts of men were continually wicked and all, all the day long. It was nothing but wickedness and continually so. And so the Lord brought about a great judgment. As we conclude Jesus' ministry on earth, we have to understand that there is an ebb and flow of righteousness by revival, interest in God, true regeneration and conversion. And there, and there, and there is a, 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 an apostasy that happens among people, among nations, among churches. It's an ebb and a flow. It's not always static. But when, they, when we reach a day where the wicked are plotting iniquity on their beds, things have gotten very grave. We're all capable of this, my friends, because as Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10, remind us that the, the heart of man is deceitful. Uh, above all things, we have in us, here in this, in the hearing of the preached word, in this preacher, we have above all things a most wicked thing, and it's our heart. And that heart is desperately sick. And Jeremiah and the Holy Spirit says, who can understand, who can really understand this? Who can really appreciate? Who can engage the blackness, the audacity, the devil in our own hearts? But this scripture here is going to reveal some of this. And we have to understand that it is this in verse 10, Jeremiah 17, the Lord goes on and says, Well, I the Lord, I the Lord search the heart. And he says, And I test the mind to give to every man according to his ways. He's interested in not the deed, but as to the motive and the love in the deed. These Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians, they were all worshiping the temple. Hey, they were very pious externally. Don't you know that they were there every day that whole week, preparing for the feast? And yet their hearts were far, far removed from God. And this is a point of application. We need to ask ourselves, do we, are we, are we aware of the danger of the closeness of that wicked, wicked man? Not the Pharisee, not the Herodian, not the Sadducee, ourselves. We need to tremble, my friends. Especially when we are before the Lord, the judge of all the earth, who searches hearts. And we need to tremble when we search our hearts and we say, we say no, I really don't find any iniquity at all. I seem to be a pretty good guy. Now, as for my neighbor, that's Churches make a great profession, they're very successful at lobbing grenades and all the wicked people. Wow! Sexual perverts everywhere and they do long sermons. Hardly anybody is convinced by any preacher today that they are a bomb in their thoughts. And the Lord yet searches their minds. And this is why we insist before we come to the Lord's table. We pause, we consider, we pray. Lord, search our hearts. Make me know. Search my anxious mind. Know my ways. See if there's any harmful way in me and lead me, Lord. I plead and lead me in the way of righteousness. But the wicked will plot iniquity even on their own beds. The righteous dream of many things. So the loves of their lives, the dream of their children. They like to dream perhaps of what they'll do on the weekend or maybe the next vacation. Maybe something they've enjoyed. We dream about all the good things. 
But the wicked loves to meditate and, and ruminate and, and digest and redigest evil on their beds. They dream and they can't sleep unless some plot is about to emerge where they can express their lust of wickedness. Now, if you think, my friends, that conspiracy theories and all that are a hoax, <laughs> well, you haven't, read, you haven't read the last papers this week anyway. A lot of things are being exposed. I don't want to get into politics. But I want to say this, that wicked men will conspire with one another, even when they don't have anything in common, against a common goal. And you are very, very uh, miseducated and misdirected uh, if you think not. That's what evil hearts do and will continue to do. Wicked men purpose to oppose Christ and to Second point is that wicked men are sinful, use sinful means to oppose Christ. And here the simple means is a flattering speech, a speech that has smooth words. You know, Psalm 55, I think, says uh, his words were smooth as butter, but inside there was a churning heart, the milk of the word got there and instead of, you know, receiving it, he just churned it and churned it and whipped it up into butter for his tongue to speak lies and flattery, flattery. Persecution and open strife, they're not the only way, they're not the only weapons of the enemy, especially today. Uh, we, need to be, we need to be more coy uh, today or we'll get caught in there. Of course, there are, there are laws and there are courts and there are prison sentences for people that are violent. But flattery is used uh, in a very, well, it's the, it's the first means by which, by which men, man and, 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 uh, and woman, Adam and Eve, fell. That, that, that was the choice weapon of, of the serpent in the garden. Did God really say that you would die on the day that you ate of this fruit? No, 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 surely, surely not for in the day that you eat, you will, you will have the knowledge of good and evil. This is something more than what you have now. And this is, this is good for you. God knows that you will be like us, knowing the difference. I mean, the good, both, both good and not the difference, but just both, knowing both, intimately walking in both, in both spheres. His, so flattery is used to remove all caution. It certainly worked with David, and not work with Adam. But Adam is the greater, uh, the, has the greater guilt because he, he sinned deliberately. He broke covenant deliberately. Uh, but the flattery is used so that people will think, oh, you're oh, good. Oh, he's a friend. Here's a, here's a friend. And you relax your guard. You, you, you put your sword back in your sheath. And you're supposed to stand like a soldier, armed. You're supposed to hold your ground. You're supposed to be alert, be watchful. Oh, no, but that, that soldier has been seduced. He's been beguiled. All right, that's what flattery will do. Here's some biblical examples of ruination. Ruination by flattery uh, that you can take up this afternoon in your studies. I know that if you have uh, readings on the Lord's Day, it's a good practice between, uh, between uh, worship services, get your Bible read. But here's one, Delilah. <laughs> oh, man. With Samson. Shameful, shameful. A strong... Nazarite falling to this woman, her beauty and her pleading, oh, you don't really love me. Solomon with his many wives, they, they cajoled 
to turn his back on Jehovah God, though Jehovah had been very, very gracious to, to Solomon in every, every way. Hezekiah and the, and the Babylonian uh, visitors to Jerusalem, they asked to see uh, the town and learn the ways of the Jews. Hezekiah, yeah, he dropped his wisdom. He dropped his guard. And he showed them all the treasury, all the treasury, which was vast, of the kingdom of Judah. And that, my friends, was an unwholesome friendship that led to the captivity seven years of exile. And Christians must guard against flattery. That's uh, one thing, you know, my friends, to be happy when, uh, for instance, I, I just happen to like elder, uh, <clears throat> our elders tie this morning. And I, I, I said, oh, that's a beautiful tie. I even touched it and straightened it for him. I really love his tie. That's not flattery. I really love his tie. Okay? No, but flattery is a compliment, is excessive. Uh, to, to, to compliment someone excessively and, on, and often insincerely with the, with the media as a means, with, with a purpose to, to win favor, to win somebody over. And so you have <clears throat> not a desire to honor the object uh, of, your, of your words in himself, appreciating the thing because you like it or, or you love it. Uh, you have this affinity to, to someone or something, uh, but you are complimenting excessively um, and often insincerely. And this is what was going on here with Jesus. And this is a very demonic use of our language. It, it never use this kind of flattery. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, dangerous in relationships. It's deceptive. Deceitful, as I already said, it's very, very much like the serpent in the garden. Beware of flatterers. Uh, I, I won't call out names. I don't think I don't see anybody here with this besetting sin. <clears throat> but I know uh, in society, uh, people use flattery to to gain followers and uh, grow in the estimation of people's ranks. Always, always for their own advantage. And in the church, we have to be careful that we are not winning disciples against over ourselves. We're not in competition here. Uh, and uh, if, if we see someone with gifts, we, uh, we extol their gifts. We are pleased that God has given them good minds, good knowledge, uh, and we encourage them. We don't, we don't hoard God's knowledge. We don't hoard disciples to ourselves. If that's the case, my friends, we, we are already means not appointed in the church. All right. Never use flattery, beware of flatterers. Beware of Satan's seductive subtleties. Satan does not normally come to you in a flaming red costume with horns and a pitchfork and a tail. I mean, that's what Hollywood like to have. Oh, that's a That's an evil man. He's got little eyes and a peach nose and, and he's ugly. So he's, that man is, is, a, is unconscious. He's a wicked character. And so Hollywood uh, plots tend to be pretty banal, you know. And life is not like that, and so Hollywood films that are of that sort are not art at all. It's just goofiness. Satan's seduct uh, seduction is very subtle. It's not always with fire and sword. It's not always with outward persecution. I, I mean, that would be, in a sense, easier to detect and avoid. Uh, persecution, you just flee town. Yeah, you know, transfer your assets to another bank, and away you go. Bye. But the more sinister 
as the spiritual fight against the principalities. It's not, it's not men who are fighting. It's, it's principalities and powers of the air. And that's why we have to be especially on our watch. There is, my friends, a peace in the church that is only apparent, and there exists a sinister peach. Or peach, yeah, peach. Look at that. Peace. A sinister peace. An uncomfortable and sickly peace as a man that is dying in the cancer ward. He appears to be resting as a man in a hammock on South Beach, Florida. But he's not resting at all. And he's not at peace at all. He's in, he's in agony and he's on his way out. That's not peace. That's torment if he's suffering. There is a sinister peace. And by a sinister peace, he destroys many in the church. And he destroys many churches. And the Holy Spirit is grieved. And as long as there are provocations and insincerities and all manner of use of, 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 of sinful flattery in the church and all this, the Holy Spirit in his grief will not bring people to the church. The church will not be edifying. God is grieved that he's not going to implicate more people in that sin. So be very careful about the use of flattery and its effect on the unity of the church, the peace of the church, and especially, my friends, uh, in, uh, well, in the truth of the church, it's, it's, it's yeah, the doctrine of Christ. Uh, an angel of light, my friends, an angel of light is more dangerous than a fiery serpent. I'll take the fiery serpent. That is to say, that's a Hebrew term for a poisonous serpent. We don't really believe fiery dragons and things. I've never seen one. But anyway, a poisonous, a poisonous serpent an angel of light. The final point of the sermon is this. That wicked men will never prevail. Never prevail against Christ. He is our rock and he is our kingdom. The question posed then by these Pharisees and these Herodians uh, about the coin uh, is about the Roman tribute. And that was a politically dangerous question. That was uh, not a presentable a, a powder keg. I don't know if you've ever seen it. We don't use those anymore. I mean, in the movies, you know, barrels all full of gunpowder. Well, if there's a spark next to that, that thing's going to blow. This was a very dangerous question to bring into the open. It would have been better for people, those leaders especially, to ask those matters in private. Why not? If they want to know Jesus' stance, then by all means, honor him in a place that's not so explosively uh, dangerous. Uh, they could have used more discretion, but these people are not about discretion except that in appearing to be discreet in their subtlety. The question was posed as a dilemma, and if Jesus had answered as we would uh, a logical question, yes, no, uh, one, zero, uh, like that, then Jesus loses. He would have lost by either choice, because either choice was to the prejudice of one sect of the Jews or the other, or the uh, prejudice uh, against the government, uh, who's already well-strained to rule this contumacious nation called Judah. It would have been a stroke against uh, the authority of the magistrate, or it would have landed against the stroke of uh, God's church and its liberty to worship. And it just seemed like there was no answer, no clear path forward, Jesus is poised on the horns of the Lamb. Now the Pharisees and the Herodians uh, 
They then failed to tempt Jesus to deny this liberty of the sons of Abraham. I think what they were really wanting to do is say, no, you, uh, look, now we're under Roman rule, and whatever they say, uh, well, that, that, that's, that's it. Uh, if Jesus had just say, look, uh, now Jesus, what, what Jesus did say, that it was indeed lawful, it was proper for Israel to pay tribute to Caesar. Um, but then that, if, if he had said only that, that would have uh, dishonored the privileges and the rights of Jehovah's free people whom God had redeemed for himself. And it's pitting a mere creature, uh, Caesar, against the almighty God, king of heaven and earth. The Pharisees and the Herodians then failed to tempt Jesus to deny the authority of Caesar in Rome by admitting that it was unlawful. If he had said, now it is unlawful, it's unlawful for Israel to pay tribute to Caesar. This is going well uh, off of what Moses said. And uh, you know, we've even heard in some Christian circles, if we, if, if we are paying a greater tribute by way of tax, and then they'll pick some rate of tax, maybe, you know, 20% tax, 31%. If, we're, if our rate of taxation exceeds that which we give to the church, then we've made the government an idol. Now, that's, that's been around. You may have heard how we do those kind of arguments. It's not, it's not too dissimilar here. It's not too dissimilar because as long as the world continues in its fallen state, men will have to be governed. And men are governed two ways. In the world, by legal authority, the sword implemented at Noah's day after the flood. And in the church, the saints, with their wicked hearts and their propensity to, their propensity to, to do evil and plot, they are governed by the ecclesiastical authority. So we have authorities of both, but both authorities are under God. They should not, they should not be at odds. But the problem we have here in Judah. As even the religious people are out of one another, the Herodians against the Pharisees against the Sadducees, all against Jesus. And yet there is authority. That's, that's, that's the conundrum. That's the, that's the dilemma. Someone's going to go home unhappy with Jesus to the point where it's going to cost him possibly his life. And that's where this is all going. Jesus could then be charged with sedition. If he upsets the Herodians, and they're right there. Which one of these guys are organized? They didn't have tape recorders back then. They didn't have flash drives or their iPhones. They couldn't catch it on video. But they will testify. They're right there. They're ready to go against Jesus. Enough of this. Charges is sedition. The Herodians, the friends of Rome, would bring up the charge. But they failed. They failed. Why did they fail? Well, my friends, they failed because no counsel. No wisdom, nothing can succeed against the Lord. I, I want you to memorize this verse. You'll sleep better, I promise you. you wanna, I think you'll sleep 10% better this evening because you're convinced of this. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can prevail against the Lord. Plot as they will, go ahead. Every other better wicked people in, in this whole town can just be, be seething with hatred against Christ and his church. But the saint can lay his head peacefully because he knows no counsel, no plans, no understanding can avail against the Lord. Psalm uh, 21, 11, though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed.
for you will not will, for you will put them to flight. That's what they did. They, they, they departed. They, you will aim at their faces with your bows. I don't want to execute that right now. That's a difficult passage. But that's what we have. The Lord will be an overwhelming rock of consistency and an aggressor and a judge against those who are wicked. Uh, as I mentioned already, they fail. There's no counsel. can succeed against the Lord. The question of the Herodians and the Pharisees was opening a can of worms. You know that expression. A can of worms in Israel. Their question on church-state relations it can still be a thorny question. There's no doubt. We can still have continuing dialogue because, not, not because the ideal teaching is not in the scriptures, because our, our terribly wicked hearts are always vying for our own self-pleasure and self-independence. And who of us in good conscience can say that we've been praying sincerely for the prosperity and the good of our current administration? All of them. Everybody in power. Now, we divide on, the, on those issues. We divide. And yet the Lord rules. And his will is effective. All right? The church-state relation question is still be very con uh, contentious question. And Jesus, however, he's the very font and he's the very well and source of wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. And Jesus sees their hypocritical motives. He can see right through this. We, we would not see this. These people look respectful. They're the credential. They're, 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 they're polite, which is not even the case in most in most real hard opinions in church. We lose, our, we lose our politeness. By the way, that's the root word of, the, of polity, which Presbyterians are really crazy about. We need to go forward in good process and in good order. But Jesus sees all through this, and here he condemns them. And then Jesus' answer once again turns the question around about what's really, really at heart. The question really at heart is, who has authority? Whose image is this? And in Scripture, the question is one of authority. He turns the question around on them and against them. Israel certainly did use the Roman currency with Caesar's image and inscription on it. Who in the world didn't? You couldn't, you couldn't barter any. The barter system was, was, was not that good anymore. The coinage was there as, as the, the main monetary system. I mean, it, everyone used it. Even all of these Sadducees, Herodians, Pharisees. And so by using the coin, there is an admission inherent there that there is some Roman authority over God's people. <laughs> that really sticks in the craw of the zealous Jew. Israel certainly paid tithes. They certainly paid, paid offerings to God. And so they give tribute to God. And even in their tribute, the money changers at the tables were using these coins with Caesar's image and inscription. And so they had uh, some strictures that they had to uh, obey with the civil authority, which was not, which was not Jewish, Roman. And they had some liberty uh, to honor God because the Romans still allowed them to express their religion in their synagogues and, their, and in, their, uh, in their temple. And so that, that, that was the wise and true 
and balanced and sincere and not hypocritical and non-political answer. No, we don't have to become political to have the kingdom of God go forward. We can go forward in the strength and in the truth and in the beauty of God's word, but only as we rely on the Lord Jesus as the head of the church to lead us. If we get ahead of Jesus or too far behind Jesus, we're going to be in trouble as these parties were. And furthermore, if we depart from the word of God and all of its plenary truth, we're going to find ourselves in a million denominations and isn't that what we have? And I don't mean externally that we're divided by means of organization. I mean internally we are the church today, the New Testament church, the Christian church in North America has a great deal of disagreement as to what the essential, crucial, critical, basic truths of the faith really are. It's a shame. And because we do not know the Lord as we ought, and because we do not understand the word of the Lord as we ought, therefore, we have this condition. It's our unholiness and our deceitful hearts that has us going every bit direction, but in the direction that God is leading us. So we need to repent. Every sin is, as it were, another shackle. You ought to fear sin more than anything because sin clouds your judgment as to the way to go, the best way to go in your life, in the church, in your nation. And so they all marvel at Jesus' answer. He says, look, if this is Caesar's coin, then render, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But if, if, if whatever is in the image of God, well, to God the things that are God's. Whatever has the image of God, render that to God. Now, my friends, I, I, I don't know. But the scripture here says that they were marvel. They were stunned. They, they, it's, it's, like, it's, like some, some, it's like they were asleep. And Jesus, you know, suddenly woke up and said, oh, no. That's the answer. Wow, wow. We, we have missed it by a mile. And it was a correction. And it was a rebuke. That's a marvelous, marvelous answer. And it answers the fool in the way that a fool ought to be addressed. In simple, simple, simple terms, all marvel that Jesus answered his approach to a potentially explosive question. Is the image on the coin Caesar's? Ah, it's his coin. No problem in returning it to him? It's his coin. No problem. Paying tax? It's his coin? Whatever. Is the man in the image of God? Man, created was in the image of God, even, even as broken as he, as he is in the fall, continues in the image of God, although his image is much defaced and smeared. He has some knowledge. He doesn't have any righteousness. He doesn't have any working righteousness before God, but he has a, a civility. He can still address questions to Jesus politely. Okay? Man is in God's image. And if that's so, what Jesus is saying is, with regard to the civil authority and the church authority and all that, that conundrum, that tremendous dilemma, well, folks, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. You Pharisees and you Sadducees and you Herodians, you give yourselves to God. That's the real issue, because God is the one who has authority. Precisely. Precisely what John and Christ were preaching at the coming of the king at the Jordan. That's precisely return to God. Give to God what is God's. That's 
Matthew. That's it. And Jesus is the one that can bring you to God as the mediator of the covenant of grace. And this is precisely what the big fight, the real fight, is all about. Not only in the Gospel of Matthew, but in the, God, in the whole of the Bible. And then gaining nothing on Jesus, who is altogether wise, all infinitely understanding, perceptive of the human heart, scrutinizing all the intentions and the, the very movements and the affections of, of not only Pharisees and, and Herodians, but all of us, especially in worship. Are we given a mark? Is, is God our utmost concern and is all our love poured unto this one? Who keeps the nations? Who directs kings and counsel? Who is wise to lead you in peace and righteousness and goodness? And has loved you with his very life. Is this, my friends, what is in your heart? Or are you doing something else? And laying your heart in bitter chains with some lesser God. Whose image are you in? Well, who coined that image in you? That's what you need to do. Let me conclude again. Preaching wicked men, both religious and secular, they will oppose Christ. It's in their nature. And the nature will express itself in vile counsel, planning, sedition. Wicked men, both religious and secular, purpose to oppose Christ in his kingdom, sometimes using craft and subtle means, but wicked men will not prevail against Christ and his kingdom. His agenda is sure. My friends, we need to praise Christ for such marvelous, marvelous discernment, even in so dangerous enemies. And you know that if he can navigate these kinds of serpents in the wilderness, he will certainly lead you to Zion. He will guide you through the wilderness. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night, because he is your pillar and cloud. You can praise him for that. You ought to be, you ought to be meditating on that. Your heart should be thrilled that he is with you, that he is your guide and teacher and will surely bring you to his own house, Zion, the holy hill. You must obey the just commands of, of the civil authority. That's a sub-point in the preaching, of course. Uh, the kingdom is not deterred even by the worst governments. We think, wow, if only we had a Christian government now, what would this church would fly? Um, but we also know that God is pleased to work in the wilderness. We don't know. That equation is for God to solve and not me. It's not, our, it's not our math. We don't know. The kingdom is not deterred, even though wicked men set themselves against it. Uh, do not sin against God then, and don't be foolish by rejecting his authority. Oh, we're all problem. I mean, we're all guilty of this, okay? We love to mock stupid politicians, stupid in our own minds. But the heart, the, king, the king's heart and the president's heart it's in the hand of the Lord. Be very careful. God's authority rule. God's authority. We're stewards of that authority for an office, both in the civil realm and the church, but it can never be usurped. And neither does any minister or elder have the authority anywhere to abdicate that power or to excuse any doctrine of church of, of, in, in the scriptures or any practice that is uh, uh, endorsed by God by way of ordinance. We don't, have, we don't have any authority to, to trim our religion and sculpt it to, uh, to <clears throat> for its use in our age. 
We have to teach and, and, and practice the whole counsel of God. That's the charter, Matthew 28. God's authority must never be usurped by a civil power over the church, by a church power over the, over the civil. You are in God's image, and so are you are God's. And God is the governor and the master of both civil authority and church authority. You need to get this. You need to let that sink into your ears deeply. So my friends, we need to pray for wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge that's applied rightly. Right knowledge to begin with, and then applied rightly is wisdom. This is what Jesus does. And we must be very, very humble about this. Now, I mean, by way of recap, are these COVID years and the COVID mandates and all that divided many Christians needlessly. We ought to be ashamed. I, 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 how, many of us, how many of us have confessed intemperance and a judgmental spirit and, and, and even arrogance with respect to COVID mandates? Okay? But this need not have divided uh, Christians needlessly. If we have still divided, we need to make repair. We need to make repair. Uh, do you need to repent? And this and perhaps some other, some other ways. Now, I've already mentioned about the greatness of Christ, and he is to be praised at all times for all that he is, especially as he reveals himself in great extremity of, of, of pressure, danger. He's willing to go through that for you. He had to go to the cross. He had to suffer himself. He had to suffer the, uh, the contradiction of, of sinners, well-intended perhaps in their zeal for their law, whatever, but deadly, deadly snakes. And take comfort, because just, just as Jesus triumphs here, he will continue to triumph. He will continue to lead you in triumph. In, in, in procession <clears throat> as your enemies fall 10,000 on your left 10,000 on your right and that's just our captain that's our Lord he does it in weakness by, by bearing the cross he does it <clears throat> in splendor by raising from the dead he is at the right hand of God administrating all the affairs of all nations and all events nothing, nothing in any of the universe happens aside from the mediation of Christ, but especially to his church. And he is no fool, and we must not grumble against his administration. We must rejoice and be glad exceedingly, because God is for us. And God for us, well, who can be against us? There will none prevail, because Jesus cannot, cannot be defeated. He is victor. Now, as another emblem of his love, that, that God is truly for us. We are reminded by way of this ordinance, the Lord's Supper, that He gave His all, that He could not, He could not give anything else to us. In giving us the Lord Jesus, who is the mediator of all things. Well, Jesus is ours, so all things are ours. And the heart of faith and the, and, and the mind that is enlightened in the Holy Spirit will see this and rejoice. This is a tremendous gift. And we need this gift by way of reminder. And that's why the Lord gives us this ordinance. To remember. For the elders, please come up. We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper.
Beloved, this is a, <clears throat> the Lord's Supper and the table is for the Lord's people. If you are a visitor, you're a Christian, you've been baptized <clears throat> in the name of the Lord, you profession publicly like that, <clears throat> and you uh, can point to some, some minister of Christ who uh, is a gospel minister and uh, know that he is the under-shepherd, the elders in the church uh, <clears throat> are watching over you. You are in subjection to authority. You're not a freelance, a uh, libertarian, just a, a soul aimlessly floating about, but you are in good order under God's rule. And you love his church and you love Christ. You've made profession in that way. If you <clears throat> have turned and continue to turn from all your sin, relying not on your repentance, not even on your prayer and confession, you're relying on the merits of Jesus all his righteousness and uh, all his mercy then this table is for you and uh, this table is one of strength there is true spiritual help here this is not a, a mere mental exercise christ has always promised to be with us but especially in the sacraments is there a grace dispensed to help us in every way nourish our souls and quicken us uh, <clears throat> to a greater understanding, greater wisdom, greater charity, uh, greater peace. Whatever, whatever you may be lacking, think of that and ask the Lord to provide help in that, in that way as he gives himself to you spiritually, his spiritual body and this drink, which is his blood. <clears throat> Let me read to you the words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, Corinthians, that I'm that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. I do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And then it has this, this fencing. By the way, we fence the table in this way that the sincere worshiper, sinful worshiper, but we're, all sin, we're all sinners. But when we confess our sin and depend on the Lord's righteousness and turn by the strength he gives us in the Holy Spirit, when we turn, we are worthy. But the, so we fence the table in this way. And why? So we don't give offense. So that we don't offend God, who knows hearts and is not pleased with hypocrisy. And we don't offend our neighbor who knows our scandalous ways and knows well that we are not sincere in our Christian profession. If you have been a social scandal, let's hold off. Let's hold off. And you've received Christ in the word preached. And make peace with whoever you are not at peace with and then come to the table. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. And when we're judged, even when we're judged, we're being disciplined by the Lord so we may not be condemned along with the world. All the Lord's ordinances are good, they're meant for our good. Let us yield to the goodness with a full heart and faith, knowing that God will bless us in these. Let's pray. Now, these ordinary gifts, Lord, bread and wine, 
They're so common. But your grace is altogether uncommon. Your redeeming, regenerating, saving grace is precious beyond price. And so, in, Lord, in offering up bread and wine to your people, may you sanctify these common elements to your good in this sacrament. And may this body, or this bread, be truly remembered as Christ gives to us his whole body and the draining of his life, <clears throat> the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant, the blood of the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. We beg you, Lord, help us and help us to celebrate in Christ. Amen. And the last <clears throat> night of his earthly life, the Lord Jesus was in the upper room in Jerusalem uh, last week. <clears throat> and he was there with his friends, the disciples, in the upper room. And at a table, he took bread. And he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, This bread is my body. It's broken for you. You take it. You eat it in remembrance of me. <clears throat> 